threaten our faith and times of personal turmoil that you walk through uh, can also cause faith to waver and, and, and weaken. In fact, uh, trials, I find trials to be generally a, a wonderful occasion to bring about um, a questioning of the goodness and the nearness of God. Um, we hit those situations in life um, where whether it's health issues, whether it's a financial concern, whether it be just this constant relational conflict, where we begin to wonder, God, do you regard our way? And, and God, do you, do you hear us? I mean, are your ears stopped to our prayers? In other words, trials bring about a real exposure of what do we feel about God in, in the midst of the difficulty? And, um, and the question that I think Isaiah is going to be going after is, is this idea that, that we can be faithful in the midst of trials when we have a right view of God, when we have a right view of his greatness and his glory. So it's kind of like when you're a kid and you, you know your neighborhood really well and you know uh, around your town, and then for the first time you get an airplane and you take off and you kind of fly and you see things from a much bigger perspective. And then all of a sudden everything begins to make sense. You begin to put things in place a little bit more from that bigger perspective. I think that's what Isaiah is giving us here. He's giving us a bigger perspective of God so that we might have faith, that we might endure even joyfully in the midst of the struggles and trials that we're going to naturally have. Now, let me try to explain the context and why I think Isaiah is saying this. In the first 39 chapters, we've seen that the people just turn to other gods time and time again. They've turned to other gods. They've turned to other nations. They've turned to other, uh, other kings. They've turned to their wealth. They have not looked to God with faith. So when issues come in life, instead of going to God, the creator of all things, they've gone to all these other things. And they've been rebuked and rebuked. And we walked through many of the chapters in the first half of the book on God rebuking them for their lack of trust in God. Now, 39, 6 and 7, it's kind of the end. It's the final. It's the demise. I mean, and God's saying, I'm done. You're going to Babylon. In other words, you wanted to trust in Babylon to save you? Then you can go to Babylon. And, and he was going to send them to exile. This is a historically the case that, that, Babylon, that, that Babylon came in and deported the nation of Israel. Now, I want you to know, this is a, a national tragedy. I, I mean, to be taken out of your land and to be drawn to the other side of the Fertile Crescent, to have to make a new home in a new place with a new language a, as a foreigner and as a slave. I mean, you can just imagine. I mean, it's not just the loss of vacations and homes and jobs. It's the loss of family. It's the loss of life. It's the loss of culture. You can imagine the utter despair. But let me tell you, there's something more. And this is kind of what's sitting underneath of it. It's not just that. The despairing part came in that 6th and 7th verse of chapter 39. When Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, your sons will be made eunuchs in the palaces of Babylon. Why? Why is that so significant? God had promised. We've already read it. Isaiah 7, 9, 11, 25. God had already promised that he's going to send a deliverer. He's going to send a Messiah who's going to come through the line of the kings of Judah. So David, he made that promise. An everlasting kingdom will come through your line. Well, Hezekiah's line was David's line. And with the, with the taking of Hezekiah's sons and making them eunuchs, 
what would that do to the promise of God? I mean, the whole promise of God is teetering on the edge. You can imagine the despair. It's over. It's finished. It's done. We have no hope. That's what they'd be saying. I mean, I don't know that we have experienced this type of despair. All hope, present day and future day, gone. Okay, it's in that context now that we see Isaiah 40 come on the floor. Because Isaiah now begins to speak words of comfort to the people. He's just told them that they're going to go into exile. And now he's going to bring words of comfort. I mean, it would be like a cold glass of water on just the most parched of throats. He's, he's promising deliverance. That even though you will go into exile, even though you will go into trials, God's promises and purposes will not be thwarted. God's purposes will stand. It's a whole different shift. Listen, Isaiah in chapter 6 was said that he was given a ministry. God said you have a ministry to declare judgment to the nations. And he did that for 39 chapters. Isaiah said, well, how long, O Lord, do I have to preach this? In verse 13, and he said, God says, until the cities are desolate and the people are taken far away. Well, guess what that is? The exile. Now in Isaiah 40, it's as if Isaiah's caught up before God again. He's caught up before God, and he says this, preach comfort to my people. Preach forgiveness to my people. It's a great hope. It's exciting for us. I'm about to read this chapter, and, and, and I, feel, I feel like I, I could just read it and just let it sit on you. I, I, I feel as if I'm, I'm actually concerned. It's like bringing this beautiful, I don't know, prepared dish that you're just afraid of stumbling and messing it up. This passage is so beautiful. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 40. I don't know, I say this periodically, but I don't know that there's a more glorious chapter of hope in the midst of despair. So read it with me, Isaiah 40. I'll start in one. I'm going to take a few minutes. I'm going to read the whole thing. It is that beautiful. And now that you know the context, I want you to hear it. You, you, you are in exile. You are in trouble. Your life is just about over. And here's what God says. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. and His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what lightness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tented dwelling, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the, greatness of his, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not, he does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, in the midst of great trouble, I would add, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Okay, so what Isaiah wants to do here, he's talking to a people who are about to go into exile, it's going to be a few years, but they're going into exile. They're going to find a great darkness there. He wants to remind them of this divine promise of God, that God's promises are certain and sure. And he's going to explain this promise to them. And then he, what he's going to do is he's going to give proof that this promise will come to be. He's going to marshal proof for them. And then he's going to persuade, or I would even argue, he's going to plead with us, will you trust in God? in the midst of your own struggle and trial. So the first part, he's going to explain the promises found in the first 11 verses that I read. But notice in verse 1, where God tells him, there are really three voices speaking, uh, I presume that they're Isaiah. But, but, but he says, comfort, comfort my people. That word for comfort, by the way, is console. It means to, it means to encourage those who are faint-hearted and struggling. It means to help up. It means kind of to breathe life into those who are really despairing and in a very dark place. God is wanting Isaiah to speak words of comfort to his people. He says, speak tenderly to them. 
uh, in Hebrew, literally, speak lovingly to their heart, uh, as if he's saying, woo them to trust in me. Yes, things are bad, but I have things planned. This is not the end of the story. In fact, he tells us why we should be comforted. He says, your warfare is ended. God will bring to a close this world and this exile, and he will bring us back to himself. And he says, your iniquity is pardoned. Your sins are forgiven. God's plans are established, people. We have great confidence in that. This is comforting to us, especially in the middle of a crisis. This crisis is not sovereign. God is sovereign over all crises. But then he explains to us in verses 3, 4, and 5 how he's going to bring this about. And I know that you've heard this reference in Matthew 3, speaking about John the Baptist. But it came first from Isaiah's mouth. It says, cry in the wilderness to make straight paths for the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's coming. This is how the comfort's going to be here. The Lord is going to come. He's not going to give us blessings from heaven. He's not going to just fire them from the halls of heaven, but he's going to come down among us. And he's going to bring these blessings of of pardon for our iniquity. He's going to lead us out of the exile. The Messiah is going to come from God to lead us. God's not going to send some half proxy. He's not just going to declare it from heaven. He's going to enter our world in space and time and lead us out himself. Incredible. That's the joy. That's the glad tidings of 9, 10, and 11. When he tells Isaiah, go up to the mountain, the high mountain. I want everybody to hear it. That behold your God. He comes in his arm with power. The arm was a symbol of strength. Strength of a man, a warrior, was in his arm. And he comes with power. That This Messiah is going to come as a king. He's not going to come without the authority of a king. But he's also going to come as a shepherd. And I want you to look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11 is a, is a beautiful verse to meditate on. He will, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. I mean, I mean the proximity And the closeness that he has. He says that he will carry them in his bosom. He'll gently lead those that are with young. In other words, you cannot drive an animal that has just given birth like you can drive an animal that is is healed from the process of giving birth. He is that gentle. He's that aware. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. And he's gentle. This is the promise he's given. It's a promise of comfort that he will come and deliver us. He'll forgive our inequity and he'll lead us. And he'll lead us as a strong king, but a gentle shepherd. Now, I'm thankful that this promise isn't rooted on your capacity or my capacity or our ingenuity or our potential, but it's it's not rooted on us. You see why in verses 6, 7, and 8. He says all flesh is like grass. Even the greatest of us, you're just grass. I I mean, what an emblem for brevity and weakness. He can blow upon us and we wither. And then the wind just carries us away. No, it's rooted in his word. It's rooted in God. It's rooted in the character of God. The promise of deliverance never rested on you. It never rested in how you would receive it, how you would believe it. It was God sending the Messiah to die for sins for us. That's the gospel. It's a unilateral act of grace by God resting in his word. And I'm thankful for that. Now, did this come true? This is Isaiah. He's speaking to a people 
but within a hundred years they're going to be driven into exile. They're going to read these words, and they're going to say, is it true? Will he lead us out of exile? And I'll say, yes, it's true. Yes, it's true, and yes, it will still be true. The reason I say it in that way is this, that God did draw them back. If you were to read Isaiah 45, you would see Isaiah again prophesy, not exile, but deliverance from exile. And not only does he promise that they'll be delivered from exile, he even names the king of Babylon who will send him back, Cyrus. It's incredible when you read it. He predicts a man by name to be raised up in Babylon prior 100 years, and he's the one that repatriates the people to the land. And he also funds it, by the way. But you know, that wasn't the final fulfillment of this. Why? Because this deliverance from exile was never simply about repatriating people. Okay, they moved to the other side of the Fertile Crescent now in 536. By the way, the third wave of exiles came back to the land. That wasn't the deliverance from exile. Oh, it, it was in part, but not in whole. We know that because even 500 years later, when you move to the New Testament, you realize they're still waiting for the comfort of Israel. The same line from Isaiah 40. And we see this in the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Listen, in Luke chapter 2, here's what he writes. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. In other words, Isaiah promised, God said, comfort, comfort my people. When? Well, now he says, it's here. He says, a man righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen God's Christ, the Messiah, the one fulfilling Isaiah 40. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, the deliverance that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. In other words, the exile that he was waiting for wasn't just that we would retake the land, but that we'd be drawn out of exile from sin and shame and guilt from God. It's an exile from God. It was all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. They were exiled out of the garden. And and, and then you just see this litany of sin and self-destruction in the people of Israel. This is the exile we needed. This is the comfort we needed. And Simeon saw that in Christ. Jesus has come to fulfill Isaiah 40, clearly. Not only that, but even John the Baptist, the forerunner, that promise of someone's going to go out in the wilderness and cry, make straight the paths, that's what John the Baptist did. His whole ministry was in the wilderness. What was he doing? He was preparing the people for, for the comfort of Israel. He was preparing them for the Messiah to come. And that was not lost. Jesus went out to be baptized by him. And the disciples saw this glory. It says in John 1.14, it says that, we be, that, that the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only. That's the one and only God. We saw his glory. And Jesus came as a king, right? He established a kingdom. He, he's preaching the kingdom of God is now at hand. He came with power, miracles, raising the dead, healing the sick, cleansing the leper. He was showing the power of a king to establish a kingdom. But he came so gentle, didn't he? I, I mean, he would, he would move to the prostitute. He would embrace the tax collector. He would touch the leper. He would eat with the downcast. He was so gentle. Even even the hardest atheist, when you read the Gospels, you may discount it all, 
But you don't question it. He seems like a really nice guy. He's really kind. He's really gentle. In fact, the only time we see him get angry is with whom? The religious people, us. That's amazing, isn't it? We ought to take note of that, actually. I mean, he only gets mad with the religious people. Not the sinners. He's kind of the sinners. He's a friend of sinners. We sang it. I love singing that. He's a friend of the sinner. So Christianity, when you look at this promise of God, Christianity is not about some esoteric ideology. It's not rules. It's not a a pattern of belief. It's about a Messiah that has come from God in space and time to deliver us from exile, not bringing us back to a land that we haven't been deported from, but, but, but he's bringing us back to God. And since our sin has caused the exile, the one who's going to deliver us from exile has to bear the sin to draw us back to the Father. And that's what he did. This Messiah has come to bear our sin, to bear our shame, to bear our guilt, so we can leave exile and return to this land of promise to be with God. This is really the glory. You know, it says all flesh will see his glory. You will see nothing more glorious than the cross of Christ. The gospel is the glorious message. It's this God who is reconciling us to himself through this Messiah. So you see, God is just. God is perfectly righteous and just in punishing sin. And you see that in the cross. And at the same time, God's the justifier of us. In other words, we're declared innocent now because Christ has borne our guilt. Therefore, God is both just and the justifier, and they meet themselves perfectly at the cross. So the cross displays the great glory of God. All flesh saw the glory of God in the giving of the Messiah on a cross. Does this give you hope? I mean, does this give you a sense of joy? Do you believe this? I mean, can you trust God for all things? I mean, can you trust God that, that he will care for you and love you? Are you still striving to earn his love? Are you still feeling as if you, you go awry just a little bit, and now God's turned his back on you? Is that how you feel? Because this would paint a different picture. This would paint that gentle shepherd. that As sheep kind of go astray, we had two sheep in our, our yard for two years living overseas. Even, even me coming to help them, they would run from me. They would run from me. Now, granted, I didn't like the sheep, but they didn't know that. They'd get caught in the fence. I'd go out at night, unhappy, about two in the morning, trying to unhook this sheep from getting his head caught. I was coming to help them, and yet they were striving to get away from me. I feel like that's what we do so often. We, we, we position ourselves outside of God's care and love because we've sinned. But he's a friend of the sinner. He's a friend of the sinner. I mean, th- this, this also should birth some humility in us, kind of a gospel humility, kind of a gospel humility that says, God, I want you to get all the glory because you've done all the work. I mean, this is for me a distinguishing mark between the one who possesses Christ and the one who professes Christ, a gospel humility that he's not looking to draw some of the responsibility and some of the privilege to himself. He's happy to say, God, you deserve all the glory because you've done all the work. I'm just a happy recipient of all that you've done. This is a promise for us. I want you to to, to kind of just rest in this God that is being presented here, displayed perfectly for us in Christ. 
But you know what? When you're in trial, this is hard to believe, isn't it? When you're in trial, this is a difficult issue. You really struggle with believing it. And, and Isaiah knows that. And he knows they're going to go into exile, and they're going to say, hold it now. What gives here? You're so nice. You're so kind. I'm having trouble believing it. And so in 12 to 25, he begins to marshal proof. He gives proof of this caring, powerful God. In other words, this is the challenge you're going to have. You, I, I think when you read that, those first 11 verses, you think, wow, I, I want to believe in a God like that. But then, but then the heat and difficulties come on, and you begin to waver. Okay, so now Isaiah is shifting to, here's the promise, let me give you the proof. The proof is in the power of God. Look with me in verse 12. In verse 12, he begins, who has measured? So for those of you who right now are in a trial that's like a tsunami, it has more power than you, you, you can handle. You don't even know what to do. It's too great for you to handle. It's too powerful. Look at 12 with me. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket? In other words, he's using these common measurements that we use, right? The hollow of a hand, about a tablespoon of sugar, you know, a scale. Maybe you measure a pound of meat, a ruler. It measures 12 inches. It's a foot. These are small human measurements. But then Isaiah uses these little things, and he says that God can use the little things, the hollow of his hand, but you can put all the oceans and seas and rivers in there, that all the dust of the earth, all the mountains on the earth, you can pile them on a scale. That's how great and powerful God is. I mean, these things are immeasurable to us, but not to him. He can measure them in the hollow of his hand. Isaiah is painting a picture for you. Whatever trouble you have, whatever darkness you're in that seems so powerful, the water's in the hollow of his hand, and, and your confidence begins to rise. But not just his power, how about his wisdom? Perhaps some of you are facing complex, just complex life issues. Life is so complex. And, and when you begin to peel back the kind of the layer of your lives, all of a sudden we all have multiple closets of just complex problems we're dealing with. And people say, what should I do? I've got to tell you, in my mind, a lot of times... I won't when you're in front of me. But I often say, I have no idea. I, I mean, this is, the life is too complex to have some cute little paragraph of help for you. But look at 13 with me. He says this, who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who's instructed him? Who, who did he consult to enlighten him? In other words, you, you know, back in, the, in prior days, in the days of the kingdoms, Kings would require citizens to report to the king any activity that was seditious or treasonous. The king in his castle always needed eyes on the ground to help him run his kingdom. God doesn't need that. God knows in the minutest detail of the issues of your life. You don't need to inform him. He doesn't get caught off guard. He doesn't get hit. I get hit with questions I don't know the answer to. He, he doesn't face that. He's never consulted with anybody. He's never going to turn to me and ask me, well, from your experience, what do you think? Or, or what do you think about this? He'll never ask anyone. He doesn't need to. His wisdom is so great. So when you're facing these problems that are so complex, you, you trust in him. He knows it. But not just power and wisdom, but I would say even rulers, kings, those in authority. Some of you are facing conflict and trials and tragedies. Perhaps it's a boss. Perhaps it's someone who has some exertion of power over you. Perhaps you feel threatened by somebody. 
and, and you feel like you're in a trial, it's hard to, can I trust God here? Well, look with me in 15 and 17. He says, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands, islands, as though they were fine dust. He brings princes to nothing. He makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. He blows on them and they wither. This is the kind of God you're dealing with. I mean, we don't know this God, I think. We don't know him. I, I, I mean, he, he, he talks about it. When you're dragging a bucket of water to wash the car and a little drop spills out, you don't fret and fume over that issue. Or when you're at the, you're at the deli counter, you can be the most penny-pinching person in the world. And you don't say, hey, could you clear the dust off that thing first? I don't want to pay for any dust. It, it's insignificant to you. You don't even think about it. You don't even think about the dust on the scale. God is so great. The chasm is so large that the kings of this earth, you know, they've been showing all these pictures of, of uh, Vladimir Putin with his shirt off and he's got something working. I think it's a midlife crisis. But, but the reality of it is he, he's posturing himself as this big dynamic guy kind of thing. Who is he compared to God? He's dust. Our rulers, they're dust. They're all dust on the scales. It's profound when you think about it. Think about the kingdoms of this world. Assyria, the first world power. Where is it? Babylon ate it. Where's Babylon? A great power. Well, Persia ate that. Where's Persia? Well, Rome destroyed that. Where's Rome? Where has Rome been for 2,000 years? Where have the Italians been? I always ask my mother that. She's Italian. But, but you see kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Look through history. And their God stands over them all. When you're in trials and troubles, we turn to this God. Not just that. How about when you're encountering issues and struggles and trials? You don't know where to turn. And you begin to turn to people and things and experiences. Well, Isaiah has a word for that in verse 18. He says, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. In other words, and then in 19, it speaks about you've got to take it to a guy who can make it so that it doesn't totter. It's hard to make things not totter. And he says, are you going to compare me to a God? This is when we search for meaning and security and safety and happiness, and you turn to created things, I want you to know it's lunacy. Because here's what's happening. The created world is turning to the created world for transcendent truth and safety. You won't find it. You won't find it. It's absolute lunacy. But that's what we do. And Raven prayed that. When we turn to these good things that God has given to us to show us his kindness, when we turn to them for help, it's crazy. So, so at the end of the day, who are you going to trust? Is it crazy to trust God when I've just gone through this? Is it cra- was it crazy for, for the people of Israel when 185,000 people were out, or 185,000 soldiers were outside their gate? Is it crazy to trust God in that context? Is it crazy to trust God for the difficulties you're having in your, your continual marital issues or the problems you're having with your children or the financial concerns or the health crises you've just been notified about this month? Is it crazy to trust God for that? Or the lack of friends or the lack of, of beauty that you think you have or the lack of going place? Can you not turn to God and just trust him alone? Trial is the furnace where he forges faith. This is ground zero for us. It's in the darkness, it's in the struggle that God is great. But let me warn you, you won't be able to trust God if you look at God with a certain weightlessness to him. 
a weightlessness. In other words, if you don't see God in all of his glory as he's revealed himself, he's going to be hard to turn to and hard to trust. You know, the word for glory is heaviness. It's weightiness. You think about that with God. We have felt more comfortable to fashion God after our images. We've made him a manageable deity, like a little idol. I can take from, the next, from one room to the next room. We make God like us, and we feel better about ourselves. That is a very man-centered approach. Forget who the old poet is, but man measures all things by himself. That is foolhardy. As opposed to Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? So, so trust in God. That's what Isaiah is calling for. He's giving us proof. See, trust in God. So Isaiah's done two things so far. He's promised us this divine promise. And now he's proven to us that God is able to deliver. And then last, he's going to persuade. Now let me just give you four thoughts. These are just four kind of application points from verse 26 on that that are more practical in nature, that when you're encountering crises and struggle and difficulty, that you can consider these things And these are that which cause you to mount up with wings like eagles. This is what helps you run and not grow weary, walk and not be faint. The first one is found in verse 26. Look at it with me, if you will. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created all these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? In other words, they're going to Babylon, right? So Babylon, the tradition is there. You worship the stars. Why? Well, because the stars and the constellations have power to ordain life for you. And so the Babylonians worship the stars. God said, don't worship the stars. Worship the one who made the stars. Worship the one who calls them all into existence. Now, let me tell you, just to give you a handle on what's out there. So our solar system is in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is about 104,000 light years across. It's kind of like a pinwheel. 104,000 light years. A light year is if you got in a car, my kids could be driving it, for example, and, and it drove 186,000 miles per second. Per second. And you go on one end, it's going to take you 104,000 years to get to the other. It's incredible. 100 billion stars in our galaxy. With the Hubble telescope, they've now discovered that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. Of galaxies. He knows them all by number. Lift your eyes, he says. Lift it up. If he can, if he can call all those, you, it would take you 3,000 years if you gave the names and read them off of all 100, million star, 100 billion stars in our galaxy. It's incredible. That's, what's, that's the universe God's running. I think he can help us in our trouble. But, but even more, don't just look to creation. Look to the firstborn of creation. Lift your eyes to Christ. Lift your eyes to Christ through his resurrection that he has now been seated above all rule, authority, power, and dominion for us, the church. I mean, people, the, the, the blessings and the grace that just flow out of God to his people are profound. So lift your eyes. First look to the heavens, but then look to the one that heaven sent, Christ himself. And then, and then secondly, I would say fight the temptation to think God is distant from you. You have to fight it. Look in 27. He kind of gives the words that come to our minds when we're in trouble. He says, why do you say to me, Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from God. 
My right is disregarded by my God. Folks, I know the temptation is great to say that. We feel abandoned. His transcendent truth, his sovereignty seemed cold and sterile and distant, and he's not helping us. I want you to fight that. And the way you fight that is the way Isaiah did, which is read 28 and 29, where he says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Consider the nature of God. He is never lacking in wisdom. He's never lacking in power. He's never lacking in commitment to his people. He's never lacking. Please don't take your temporal trials and question the eternal love of God. Don't judge God's greatness by the small, short microcosm of your life. He's much greater than that. John Knox was a 16th century Scottish reformer. He was a firebrand preacher. And here's what he writes. He says, By what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience to God, the Scripture does witness, by pouring into their hearts that poison that God did not love them. That started the whole thing rolling sideways. Let's not continue the poison that God doesn't love us. Thirdly, ask God for strength. Look at 29 and 30. He gives strength to the weak. Admit that you're strong. In verse 30, he says, even the youth, if you think, well, when I was stronger, when I was younger, I could have handled it. No, even youth grow weary. Even the young and the strong, they fall exhausted. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be broken. Ask him for strength. He never tires of you asking. I know it's a simple application point, ask him, but a lot of times I don't see us asking. I don't ask. I'm trying to white-knuckle through problems, holding on to faith, instead of recognizing my own limitations and my own weakness and saying, God, I don't have it. I don't have what I need to enter this world. And I need you to give me strength. And I ask for it in the name of Jesus. Ask him for it. And, and then last, wait. Wait on the Lord. Now, when I say wait, <clears throat> this is really important. It's an active waiting. It's like a, one author said, it's like an inner vigil of your soul. It's a restlessness, an eagerness. What waiting is, is it's faith holding on until divine grace comes. That's what it is. It's a waiting. But I want to remind you, I don't want us to slip into the fact that God makes these promises of deliverance. They are are not always immediate. To think, well, I'm just going to ask him, and he's going to deliver me from the trial. Folks, he delivers us through the trial. He doesn't always lift us out of the problem, but he meets us in the problem and takes us through it. This is hard for us to understand. We want to just be pulled out. But, but, but he takes us through the trouble. See, a miracle faith, what we call a miracle faith is I'm going to ask God for something. I'm going to trust he's going to give it to me. And, and if he gives it to me, I'm going to think he's good. That's a miracle faith. A biblical faith is I'm going to know that God is good even if he doesn't answer my question or my request in the exact means. Because I know that he's good. He knows more than I do. He is able to give me power to go through the trial, and I may display his glory in a way I couldn't have otherwise. It's a different kind of faith. One's a miracle faith, one's a biblical faith. Waiting on the Lord cannot be done if you separate yourself from people. When you're in trial, isolation is the way to go. It's hard not to want to isolate ourselves when we're in trouble. We don't think everybody understands what we're going through. And it's hard to do it. But you have to stay with the body. That's why he says, let us encourage one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. We want to encourage one another. How do we encourage each other? 
by not being silent, by saying, behold your God. These glad tidings that Isaiah was called to go to the mountain to preach, that's what we're to preach to each other. We're not to say, oh, it's all going to be better. You lose a child. Well, you've got another one. We can say some stupid things trying to take them out of their pain. We don't want to take them out of their pain. We want to meet them in the pain with the hope of God. That's what we want to offer people. This is who we have as a God. Yes, your problems are great. This is who we have. So Isaiah gives us this great promise. What a divine promise that God is going to lead his people out of exile. And God is surely able to do it. His power, his glory, his wisdom, his might, his incomparability are without measure. And what are we called to do? We're called to wait. We're called to wait in faith for him to come. We're still waiting now. We are so gladly waiting because he's already come and done the work. Now he's just coming back to collect us. So let us give a few minutes of thanks. It's going to be a, a shorter prayer time because I went a little bit longer. But, but let, let's, let's just, I'm going to pray briefly. Just for those of you, particularly those who don't pray normally. You know, th- this is a, a collection of God's people responding to God's word for God's glory. So, so just, uh, let's just give thanks to God for who he is. Perhaps we want to confess that we really have just been introduced to God for the first time today because we didn't know he was so great. And then um, uh, David's going to close us in prayer. Let me open us. Father, thank you for this word. Father, may you take the power of your spirit, press it upon our soul, that it bears fruit for your glory. I pray in the name of Jesus.